Hi, and welcome to the Everywhere podcast. We're a global community of founders and operators who've come together to support the next generation of builders. So the premise of the podcast is just that, founders interviewing other founders about the trials and tribulations of building a company. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, welcome everyone to the Everywhere podcast. I'm Jenny Fielding, and I'm very excited today to have my friend Oban from Spade joining us. So welcome, Oban. Hey, thank you. Really excited to be here. For those who don't know who I am, which is probably most people, I'm Oban McTavish. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Spade. We build transaction infrastructure for card data. So we work with card issuers, banks, fintech companies, anyone who uses cards and help them better understand their data to solve fraud and auth more transactions and fun stuff like that. So I'm going to embarrass Oban for a minute. We were introduced by a founder that I've backed before, who I know quite well. And he sent me a text and he said, I have a founder for you to meet. You're going to like him. He's a scrappy Jenny founder. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I actually just reread it on my text today. So how do you feel about being called a, a scrappy founder, Oban? I think it's great. Building a company is really hard. And I think something that you kind of have to always fall back on is why you're doing it. And I think if things have been too easy or maybe you know, a chip on your shoulder, you might end up wanting to give up because it's not as fun as, you know, raising lots of money, you're selling a bunch of software, like there's gonna be really hard stuff. And I I think scrappiness, everyone I know, who I like the most to all the founders of the world are mostly folks who have a little bit of chip and scrappiness. And I, I'm, I'm glad to include myself in that, you know, group of people. 100%. It's a huge, huge compliment for sure. <laughs> I'd love to kind of start a little bit at the beginning and hear a little bit about what got you on this entrepreneurial journey, some of the inspiration along the way. Mm -hmm. I think like many people, I might call myself a somewhat reluctant entrepreneur. I started out as someone who was very obsessed with investing. So I was managing money very young, which is kind of a strange thing to say, but I was just, I loved investing and I was investing my own money as soon as I could when I was 16, because you can't have your own brokerage account. So I had my dad's. And then I decided I wanted to try to manage some other people's money and sort of like looked around for some folks who'd be willing to do that. And people took a risk on me and I did, I did well. I did like 300 something percent returns over five or six years in college. I also worked at a software company and did all sorts of stuff. But to be honest, I just wanted to learn. And I felt like graduating, there's a very clear path. There is an investment banking job that's probably followed by a fund of some kind. And for me, I think that was probably going to be a hedge fund if I look back and went on a different path. But to me, starting a company was the opportunity to like learn more than any other kind of job. And I started a company called Publi, vertical SaaS for wealth managers, mostly efficiency tech. I was sort of one of the business co-founders there. And that was an incredible experience. Did that for, I guess, a little over two years. And then COVID-19 reared its ugly head as we were raising a seed. And you know, I decided to figure out what I wanted to do next. And consulted for fintech companies and kept hearing about bad data. And then one thing led to another and suddenly I'm starting another company learning all sorts of new things. So that's like the Sparks Notes version of where Spade came from. But it did start as a logo API, which I think might have been what I tried to sell you on. I don't remember if we had gotten past that point when we had talked to you about Spade. So it's come a long way. But that's sort of the Sparks Notes version of how I ended up here. All right. So a few things from that. If this doesn't work out, we... Mm -hmm might be managing my money for me. So that's good. <laughs> there's, there's a career. And then the second thing is the other person, you know, the other thing that the person who introduced us, the founder who introduced us 
said, is he scrappy? But first company was not the success he wanted it to be. And mm. so he's hungry to make the next one successful. So what do you think about that? You learn a lot as a first-time entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Maybe things don't go exactly the way you want. Does that give you added kind of hunger for Spade, you think? Absolutely. I mean, I think I've been had a very lucky second or luck. Everyone has some luck, but I think a very an enjoyable second time doing this because you learn so much about what not to do. But I think you also learn these sort of like very valuable lessons of being thankful for when things are going well. And just like, I don't know, it's hard to describe how painful it is when things aren't going the way you want them to. And then having things go the way you want is just like this. I don't know. It's very freeing. And also it makes you feel confident you can take up another big swing because going back to wanting to learn when I started my first company, I learned a lot. I learned some great things that I've taken forward into Spade and I learned some things not to do. But then when you're doing it again, that feeling of like, wow, this is all of these things I wanted to do better. And I actually get another shot to do it, which is why I think I feel so lucky to be building Spade surrounded by the investors we have and the people we have, because like, you know, getting a a second shot to do this the right way, I think it's just been, it's like unbelievably incredible. And I feel very, very lucky to be able to do that. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about the product. Mm -hmm. Before we started recording, you said, I'm going to try to, you know, describe this in a way that's not confusing. So Mm -hmm. that's always a challenge, right? When you're not building something that's really obvious. So what's what's journey um, been there in terms of mm-hmm. coming to the articulation of this and, and tell us a little yeah. bit about I think we started somewhere very simple and that we gave people logos for transactions, which was all we did initially. And then I think once you have people using your product, especially if you're building, I don't even know if we could really be described as infrastructure at that point, but let's say for simplicity's sake, as we were building infrastructure that gave you a logo for a card transaction, which is cool. But I think you very quickly, once you have people using your product, find novel ways people are using you. But more excitingly, they tell you what they would rather have. And you can very quickly, at least what we found this way, is you very quickly realize that it's not just a logo, it's a merchant identity. And what does that mean? You know, What does someone actually want? What problems are they trying to solve? And I think Spade really grew from this very complicated idea where I'm pretty sure at my seed round or pre-seed, I said something like, I don't really know what the high value use cases are, but I know people really want better data. Even at the earliest stages, there was an enormous pull from every customer we signed on or people we talked to about Spade of like, how much better would the world be? How much easier would my life be if the data that was coming out of a processor was this? Like that's an insane thing to say to someone with a, that's at that early stage. Usually there's sort of the iteration improvement. We essentially took all these learnings and packaged it together, went through a whole re-narrowing of focus and ended up where we are today, which is, I would describe us as building fintech infrastructure for card products. And what that means is if you are issuing a card, whether you are a banking as a service platform, a bank, a fintech company building on a banking as a service platform or, or a card issuer, you need better data to solve like the hardest problems you could ever have around fraud improving the transactions you can off, deeply understanding what your customers are actually using your financial product for, whether that be underwriting or risk or spend controls if you're a corporate card. And the data you have right now is bad. And what we do is we make that really, really, really good. And we don't just clean, we enrich. And I don't know if I like that word, but we really do bring in data you've never seen before and we're giving you it in real time. So that was a really jumbled way to describe what we did. And clearly, I don't know how well it went, but that's in essence what Spade does and where we came from. I think you did a great job. (laughs) Now you're on this kind of venture capital roller coaster. You closed like a really nice round from Andreessen and some other. Mm -hmm. What does success 
for Spade and for you look like? You know, I, I think success for me is just to continue learning. I think obviously there is like, we want to do right by our investors and they've given us an unbelievable amount of faith. And I take it very seriously, the fact that we started on this journey. But for me, I think I just want to keep learning. I want to hopefully by the time this journey is done, wherever that ends up at, I can look back and say, wow, like when I said, hey, this is the best way to learn about pretty much anything, I was right. And I shouldn't have gone down a different path. But for Spade, I think success is building something great. And I think great has a lot of different definitions. And great doesn't mean necessarily a publicly traded company or a $10 billion acquisition to some financial services company. I think great is something that has enormous impact, whether it be on the lives of like your employees, uh, yourself, your investors, but also on whatever industry you decide to tackle. One of the reasons I wanted to build in fintech when healthcare sounds pretty cool and dev tools sounds pretty fun too. And there's lots of interesting places you could build is that fintech touches every aspect of people's lives. Like I think we forget how important financial products are to people because, you know, maybe it's a dirty thing to say, but like the ability to be banked or the alternatives to using a card or reducing fraud, like all of these costs are often borne by the consumer, the card holder. And if we can make fraud reduction happen at a, at a higher clip, if we can help your bank better understand you to give you the right financial products, like there's just these massive externalities, I think, that exist within fintech. And that, that's what success looks like to me as a spade can look around one day and say, oh my God, what percentage of all card transactions that happen in the world are being run through our platform? You know, if we're getting that to one, two, 10, 50%, I mean, 100%, I think that's really success. And if that happens to make ourselves and our incredible investors, you know, financially successful, I'm, I'm not going to argue with that either. Love it. So you use the word impact a few times. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of the people that have been impactful on your journey. You mentioned your dad letting you trade at, at a young age. And mm-hmm. who are some of the people that have been influential in this journey? That's a hard question. I think there's a lot of people you can name. So I'm going to try to keep it as sh- uh, not too long of a list. I could probably go out for a long time. I think to give a shout out to Tommy, Nicholas, CEO of Alloy, who took the opportunity to speak to me after I'm pretty sure I emailed him a hundred times. He was the person who interviewed our last company to get into Techstars. Shout out to Techstars. And then gave me the time of day as some random founder who he talked to once on the phone. And I think he got pizza with us maybe about some harebrained at that point, really like not a company of an idea we had and respected it enough to give me feedback and take it seriously, I think was he's someone who I've always been thankful for. And then introduced me to you who was so impactful in raising our pre-seed round and helped us, gave me the feedback and helped sort of turn me into the person I am now, but also turn space to the company is today. But I think there are a few founders, there are many incredible founders, and I, I feel bad not mentioning so many others, but Tommy had was one of the one of the, one of the people who treated me with respect at a time when many people laugh at startup founders who show up with legitimately a very poorly formed idea potentially, but he attacked it critically, but also gave me the advice and connected me to the people because he saw something. I mean, I think I have to give him a shout out for that. And that's one person. And you know, my family, my fiance, who supported me even when we were in a one tiny one bedroom apartment. She heard me pitching you among every other investor we had. I think that's quite a <laughs> A unique COVID pitching experience, but she was there. And I think I told her, hey, I have this thing. I'm going to try to raise money. Give me three months. That's about how much money I'd left in my bank account at that point. And, you know, thankfully, she was like, yeah, okay, let's still see. Let's see how it goes. It uh, turned out and we did close around our pre-seed. But yeah, those are some people. Shout out to those early, early believers. Yes. 
Awesome. Absolutely. So as you think about getting the company going in the early days, what were you know some of the challenges would you say that you had to overcome? A lot of folks listening to this podcast are early stage founders and they're just kind of figuring mm. stuff out. Every day feels like a high high and a low low. So what were some of the things that that you kind of had to struggle with or, or just like figure out in the early days? And now I think I've been doing a lot of thinking recently about infrastructure as like a business. So this is kind of slanted towards that. But I think people underestimate how difficult it is to have people have take risks on you. I think when you're building infrastructure and like for us, that was a huge, a huge hurdle for us to overcome. Like if I'm just selling you here, get a logo on your transaction, it's kind of easy. Someone's like, okay, worst case scenario, something that's not target has a little target logo next to it. Like what's the, what's the risk there. But if you're dealing with things that are hard and valuable, like fraud or credit card authorization period, or, um, any sort of like core, if you're really solving pain for your customers, there's going to be, I think, a, a little bit of fear about handing off whatever that solution is to you. And I think that was one of the biggest things we had to overcome was like, not only did we have at that point, we had no backing, but we were getting people to put us in their data stream and to trust us with their data, to trust us with solving a hard problem, to build a core feature on with no funding. And I think that was one of the biggest things we had to overcome. Oh yeah, here's one simple trick. <laughs> and the whole thing solved because I think we're still working on that. But I do think that building trust with your customers and sitting down with them and like taking the time as a founder, even when everything is going crazy and just like making them know something they can trust you is so, at least when you're building infrastructure, is such a core part. I think of what we did incredibly well and why when we went out to raise, people were just shocked at how many people are using it despite us not being an incorporated or like a, let's call it a, <laughs> like, a like a super big business or anything like that. There's just a, you know, trust, I think is probably one of the hardest things we had to overcome. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I noticed was just how much time you guys spent with your customers. Mm -hmm. And if you needed to fly to New York to meet them, or if you needed to do whatever, like you really wanted to understand them better and kind of serve their needs, which is really impressive. A lot of founders, I think they stick with their vision and they're kind of like, okay, if this one doesn't want it, someone else will want it. But I really like it had your ear to the ground of like what the real pain points were. So that, that was something that always struck me. I think that really comes from like the scrappiness of like wanting to make it happen. I think a lot of folks, this was a strange time in the venture world. You could raise a lot of money with like very little progress. And I think a lot of folks were excited. And if you created hype, you could sort of play people off. And like that was happening all over the place. And like, I don't want to comment on that part of it. But what I will say is that when it comes down to it, like you still have to build a business. Like you can collect a great salary and sit around, but like if you want to build something great, it's going to be really, really hard and you have to just make it happen. And I think for me, what making it happen always meant was like diving in with the person or something happens with your product. You email every single one of them and you're answering every Slack. And like, even if there's no one, you know, or my co-founder Cooper, when something went wrong long, a long time ago, I don't even remember if we had, maybe we had a couple like tiny people. It was like the alpha version of our product. And he just like worked until it was done. Like there is no like, oh, Time to clock out. No, there. It, you just do it until it's fixed, or do it until it's sold, or meet with VCs until until you're done raising. And I think people sometimes think being a founder is fun and easy, and it is fun. And I'm so happy I'm doing it. But it has moments where you're like, you will just work until you're done. And done is a <laughs> is could be a long time or a little time. But uh, I think that's really what drove Spade and got us where we are today, and solving really hard problems for people. So I'd love to stick with that because you and I mm. had this recently, like you obviously have an incredible amount of drive 
not necessarily reflected in the community that, you know, you come from or where do you think that drive comes from, you know, just to work? Mm. Where do you think the inspiration for that is? For me, it's a lot to do with learning and like maybe like a sense of like luckiness. I think a lot of folks like, you know, I went to a school in Canada, which is like shout out to my UBC where I studied, but like, you know, no, it's like some schools and I won't name names, but you know, there's just certain advantages, I think in certain circles, there's like an assumption of quality or an assumption of intellectual horsepower, whatever you want to say about it. I think I've always just very much felt like if I had the opportunity, I could in the same way I felt about investing. I was like, well, no one wanted to take a shot on you if you didn't go to some fancy school or a hedge fund or whatever. But then you meet these people and you prove yourself to them. And that like wanting to prove myself inherently is I think what a lot of what drives Spade and that I got the opportunity to do it again. Co-founded in another company and like it still exists and like they're so great folks. And like I learned so much, but it wasn't the outcome I wanted. The opportunity to give it again means that I'm like, okay, this time I'm going to prove that like 99 out of 100 times you bet on me, you're going to win because I will make it happen. And like, that's because most people don't get two shots. Very few people get one shot, actually, which I think is kind of the sad part about all this. And I got two. So there's no way I'm wasting this. And I'm going to make it happen, regardless of like, you know, your background or, you know, where you went to school or whatever like that. That's a great soundbite for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, totally, I know. With that, what's mm. the vision for Spade? Where are you guys going and what should we be looking out for? One of the cool things about building infrastructure is that Oftentimes, if you do things right, you're going to end up in a position with so many opportunities. And that's a little bit of a cop-out. But I think what I really want to do is uh, I think we're building the kind of infrastructure that should be repeated in things like transfers and things like real-time payments and you know, in any card transaction. I think you know, the vision for Spade is that we build the future of money movement infrastructure. And whether it's happening on a card or a transfer or you know, any other type of financial instrument, I think there should be more information that exists about the parties involved. I think the craziest thing about the financial institutions is that there's so much information about people's behavior now. There's services like Incognia or Sardine or any of these other folks who are experts in like how you engage with your like phone and your car. And they know all sorts of stuff about and your bank actually knows you really well. They actually have no idea where you're spending your money without enormous investment from their part. And I think I want to fix that. I think if you're sending, if someone's trying to pull money out of your account via an ACH, we should know where that business was incorporated and what they do and how much money they make and all of this information that exists in these very disparate systems. And I think what Spade is doing is working towards that future, where if you're swiping a card, the issuing bank is a very clear idea of where you're spending your money. If you're sending money, we know where it's ending up. The value that creates can be captured in, I mean, countless different ways, but I think that's really what we're building towards at Spade. Awesome. I like that. When I think about what people are saying about fintech right now, because I'm a big fintech investor in the public markets, things are not doing so well. Even in the private markets, people are kind of like, oh, fintech really inflated or very expensive. How do you respond to that? Like for me, I'm a long-term investor. So I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I'm investing in companies that are <laughs> you know, going to do big things, but not for 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I have to look to the future. But sometimes it kind of weighs on you a little bit. We were like, wow, I'm like putting a lot of time, money, and energy into a sector that people think is potentially not as big as we thought it was two years ago. How does that make you feel? And, and where do you land on that? It's interesting. I Again, I might answer most of these questions from like an infrastructure perspective. So obviously, fintech is it's huge. I mean, what percentage of the US GDP it's a lot. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure I heard that on a podcast. I quoted that number. And I was like, that's a lot. So we could just, we could all agree. It's a lot of money that moves in and out of the financial world, which means there's a lot of opportunity. I think the way I look at it is that 
I guess there's two worlds of looking at this because a lot of money flowed into fintech and a lot of companies were created and many of them, I'm sure, I mean, I know, I know some incredible fintech founders who be enormous outcomes for them and their companies and they're really changing the world. And like with any sort of like sector that there's a lot of opportunity, many, many companies get funded, period. I think this whole narrative about fintech being overvalued, I think you could probably zoom out and say that about every single venture-backed industry. I mean, look at, you know, AI is incredible. Who's to say that's not going to be seen as overvalued? I mean, you go back to any sort of bubble or moment in time where an industry becomes sort of explodes into the limelight, there's going to be a lot of funding that flows there. I do think that from an infrastructure perspective, though, it did, for me, re- make me rethink some of the strategies, that, the playbooks that I think that existed in the past. There was very much a playbook, the Stripe, the classic, you sell to all the small startups, and then three of them become your biggest customers, 10 of them become your biggest customers. And then, you know, you take a lot of, uh, you become big because of that. I think that's very lightning in a bottle. I don't know if that's a repeatable sales model. I mean, the call sits are like pretty incredible. And when I look at what decisions we're making at Spade, given this market backdrop, it's about, if you're going to build fintech, it can't just be for the startups, I don't think. And you see that all over the place. You see like the movement to mid-market and enterprise is happening as we speak. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I took away or my reaction to this sort of thing is like, okay, it's true. We were at a period in time, the number of fintech companies founded were like, I don't even know what the number is. And I'm sure it's incredibly high. It's a lot. What I would say is that when we were looking at that, I said, well, how can we sell this to banks? How can we sell our product to the, the original, you know, let's call it the original fintechs, the, you know, the JP Morgan Chase, Citibank, Capital One, Wells Fargo. And I mean... For us, at least, fintechs aren't the only people who exist within like the universe of financial services. And I believe the, the value can be created by selling directly to people who the more traditional players, let's call it. One of the things I actually always liked about you and still admire about you, honestly, is you're very responsive. Like you're really on top of things. People say that about me all the time. Like Jenny, you have 250 portfolio companies and mm. yet bond in two seconds. And so that's like... One of the things that I've just gotten really good at over the years is just having my my act together, figuring out productivity mm-hmm. for that work for me. Any yeah. hacks or tools or things that you do to say so organized and so on top of stuff? I don't know. I personally would describe myself as organized. I think I'll start there. I think, I don't know why, but there are certain kinds of people, maybe they don't respond to your email, but they will take use the calendar link or they'll send you a three-word response. But like the ability to be instantly responsive, I think is in some ways part of the CEO's job. Now that is to say you can respond to everyone. Like you put up a job posting and there's 800 services who are trying to sell you other recruiting services. Please don't reach out to me. I think I could just say that. And for every founder elsewhere, we do not want that. So you're not going to respond to those and you know cold outreach and such like that. But I think the ability to make yourself available at a moment's notice, I think, is a, is an underappreciated skill and something that when you know the number of people I know in my circle who have helped me at the drop of a hat, I think you repay that favor with those folks. I also maybe I block time in my calendar for specific emails or follow ups and stuff like that, which is annoying for sales calls, but is also very helpful for me. But yeah, I think. It sounds terrible because I feel like I'm like, oh, work-life balance. But like legitimately, like if you have your phone and it's important, taking the second to respond, I think is you notice, people notice. Like people will notice if you instantly respond. They also notice when you don't respond. So be apologetic, I guess. That's my Canadian coming out of me. But um yeah, that's that's my productivity. My next question was gonna be, what's your superpower? So you're saying power is not being organized, although (laughs) you're organized. I'm just saying Mm, that you mm. are very proactive. Um and responsive, but what would you say is your superpower? 
feel like these are very like self-aggrandizing answers, but I do think I'm able to articulate and set a vision for Spade in a way that many of the great founders I've met, I try to emulate are capable of, because I think vision really does sort of snowball into everything. No one wants to join your company if you're not super clear about why it's such a massive opportunity. And I don't even say that like, you know, you have to say, this is the three features I'm going to release this year because most many founders don't even know that. That's included for much of our life. But the ability to articulate why what you're building is so incredibly valuable to investors, customers, and your team, I think is is what I'm good at because I've managed to, despite not coming from the fanciest school and things like that and coming from Canada, which is not the worst place to come from, but certainly create some barriers, managed to surround myself with what I think is some incredible, incredible investors, mentors, advisors, angels employees, customers. And much of that comes down to my ability to say, hey, I'm going to make it happen. And this is why it's going to be so incredible when we get there together. And I think that is uh, my superpower and why we've managed to do what we have despite competitive industry and the backdrop of FinTech or whatever we want to call it. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. We're about to wrap it up. We'll do our quick speed round. So these are just Mm -hmm. quick one, one or two word answers. Um, is there a book or a podcast that you're reading that you're really enjoying now? I am a huge sucker for Logan Bartlett's Cartoon Avatars part podcast. I guess the Logan Bartlett podcast is my is the is my favorite podcast right now. Awesome. If you could live anywhere in the world for one year, where would it be? <laughs> I'd say New York, but I guess that's happy suit. So that New York. What's the origin of your first name? It is a town in Scotland, and I'm named after a great uncle who is somehow related to that town. I'm not sure if he came from there. Or he was also named after the town, but there's a town in Scotland and there's Scotch too. So I've always wanted to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> now I can do it publicly. Exactly. Where can listeners find you? Not my personal email, but spade.com is probably the best place. You can reach out there. I think hello at spade.com. But yeah, just go to spade.com. That's the that's the place. Awesome. Well, Oban, this has been super fun. You're a great guest. And uh, thank you Thanks so for much having for your me. time. It was great. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you listening, you might also be interested to learn more about Everywhere. We're a first check pre-seed fund that does exactly that, invests everywhere. We're a community of 500 founders and operators, and we've invested in over 250 companies around the globe. Find us at our website, everywhere.vc, on LinkedIn, and through our regular founder spotlights on Substack. Be sure to subscribe and we'll catch you on the next episode.